Welcome to In Search of a Cubby, the podcast. Hi, this is Marjorie Claproot. I am constantly in search of a cubby. My theory is you either have one or you don't. And to paraphrase the incomparable Robert Frost, that makes all the difference. Now here's your host, Margie Claproot. You either have one or you don't. And Robert Frost is just, he's, he's one of my mentors. That's how old I am. I think I was born in his lifetime, came along and went... He said, you have things to do. But so welcome, welcome, Margie Claproot here. Good to have you aboard in search of a cubby where we try to figure out if you have a cubby and what was it in your childhood who helped you to make you feel safe, secure, loved, particularly in an unfamiliar situation. We'll talk a lot about how that plays out. And if you don't have a cubby, we'll talk with folks who have figured out how to give yourself a cubby so that we can move forward. My dream, of course, is to make sure that like we have a chicken in every pot. Thank you, Herbert Hoover. I want to have a cubby for every child so that we can figure out a way to get there. My guest today is so cool. She knew about cubbies long before we gave it a name uh, and we've been friends forever. She's an award-winning journalist. She's brilliant. She's beautiful. She's taller than me. <laughs> and, <laughs> and now she's a right reverend, my buddy Liz Walker. Hey, Liz. Hi, darling. It's good to be with you today. Honestly, isn't it fun um, that we've had a chance to be friends for long time longer than we want to come i know i i I was trying to think about it it's it's back in the what the 80s 80s. 90s 80s i'll tell you i'm a little bit more obsessed than you are and i went back and i was looking at your whole bio uh, which is extraordinary by the way but we'll talk more about how that comes about you were when you came to boston you'll tell me what got you here from little rock but you came to boston and I believe you started on WBZ TV in 81. Yeah, in yeah. Uh, 1980. In 80. Okay. Yeah. So in 1980, I was working on everybody's campaigns, working for the uh, Neponset Valley Health System. I was the VP there and um, doing everything, but mostly a lot of government relations work. And I ran for office then in 82 for the 84 swear-ins. And you and I crossed paths several times at fundraisers. So you were really on the ascendancy to be a star. And I was a nobody. I mean, I was, I think the Globe referred to me as Marjorie, what's her name? I think you were (laughs) always a star, Marjorie. (laughs) You're very kind. (laughs) But then we got a chance to hook up, I think, at the State House. That's my first recollection. Yeah, Yeah. you had the the Jane Doe Safety Fund, or you were... Right. Starting that, and I start. I worked with you. Uh, yeah. I remember that. Yeah, yeah that was a long. So for time folks that go back to that, Jane Doe was to the Massachusetts Domestic Violence Coalition Correct. against domestic violence, and Liz and I, we were a tour de force as their fundraisers. Yeah, we didn't. You know, we didn't get paid for anything because we didn't need it, <laughs> want it, whatever. But anyway, so yeah, we've been we've been friends a long, long time. And, and what's so exciting and, and why I was so exciting to have you here on the first week of our new podcast, In Search of a Cubby, is that I've been in search of a cubby forever. You and I have talked about this a lot over our different incarnations, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and finding that space uh, where you feel safe, where you can dig down and you can feel safe and you can remember, 
I can do this. I know how to do this. But some people don't have a cubby. Right. And uh, right. you've recreated that in so, so many different ways. I thought it would be a perfect time to talk about that trajectory. First of all, look, let's start. You want to, you want to start with Little Rock, Arkansas? I remember well, I asked you about, no, did you ever not... meet Bill Clinton, man? I never did meet Bill or Hillary back in those days. But first I want to say, what a great idea. I like the idea of safe spaces. I mean, because I think as you have said, so eloquently, that's what we all need. That's what we all need now more than ever. So I love this idea for your podcast. I know it's going to be successful. Little Rock, Arkansas. I don't know if I can ever say that was my safe space. It was my home and my parents were there. I lost both parents early and I, my yeah. stepmom raised my brother and me. And, and it was a struggle, a uh, rough time in Little Rock uh, socially. It was the time during the uh, school desegregation, Little Rock Central High School. So it was all of that. But I... I had safe space. I must have. I had you felt safe. safe. Something absolutely. absolutely. I, I look back on the kind of dynamics of the social movement at the time, but I know that I grew up in a loving family. And even though there was a lot of pain and death there because of the, my parents' death, right? My my church raised me. My father's friends raised my brother. Oh, wow. me. So we, we we had a safe space created for us all along the way. So you see, that already connects me to your life today. And we'll talk about that that in a little bit. But going from where you just said, my church also raised me, which a lot of people say, my church raised me, my school, you know, raised me, my girlfriends raised me. I grew up in Brookline, which you now know and love because you lived there for a while. And in Brookline, we were a poor Irish Catholic family in an overwhelmingly generous Jewish community that... Oh, that provided the best education and the best services for kids who didn't have much. Mm-hmm. And our family didn't have much at all. So here I am, this Irish kid that gets all the Jewish holidays off. And so I was, in that sense, raised a lot once I got to be, you know, an adolescent, especially by the people around me, you know, mm-hmm. who, who did that. So, so then what gives you the courage to say, uh, you, so you go to college mm-hmm. in, in Arkansas. No, I went. I left Little Rock when I was uh, gradu- graduated from high school at Little Rock Central. Little Rock Central, I love it. Yeah, I went to school in Michigan. My mother sent me to a church school. My father had died. My stepmom sent me to a church school. And, and that was Olivet, Michigan, in southern Michigan, not far from Battle Creek. Oh, wow. And uh, I met some of my best friends there. Uh, and, Are they uh, still your best friends? Still my best friends. Yeah. That, and that was probably one of the defining points of that school. I don't remember excelling academically. It was the 60s, as I recall, the 70s, or no, it was the 70s. But, you know, we were smoking a lot of marijuana back then, at least I was. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember yeah. much class life, but right. I, had, uh, I had a really uh, incredible support system there. And um, so, again, I had my cubby. <laughs> you, had your, you had your cubby there. It's funny. I was talking to my kids about all of this last week because I was explaining to them about the podcast, and they've lived with me you know, through the whole cubby experience. As a matter of fact, you might remember, if, if I, I'm going to call on you to be my really good friend, not to remember that uh, I first started talking about the word cubby up at the state house when I filed a bill up and out of poverty. And my son, Eric, is the one that actually gave me the name for what I was trying to say. I, was, mm-hmm. I filed this bill to provide health care, food, um, and a roof over the head for kids 
of single moms. And that eventually grew into the kinds of things that you and I worked on with Jane mm-hmm. Doe and with One Family, et cetera. But Eric had gone to school and um, kindergarten first day, came home hysterical, just sobbing and sobbing. And I said, what's wrong? What's wrong? I mean, he had a good, like you say, good, solid home, you know, rabbits on the wall in his bedroom, you know, everything that I could give him that we could give him. And he said that when he got to school, there was no cubby with his name on it. Uh, and all the other kids had one. Uh, he was hysterical. And so when I was at the state house, uh, we had several hearings and one little boy came and spoke to the legislators. His name was Sean. He was the same age as Eric would have been at that time. Uh, and he told a story about moving from shelter to shelter and all of his stuff in a trash bag, in a hefty bag. Mm. And I thought to myself, right then, it like hit me, bam. If Eric, with everything that he had to support him, could get unglued by not having a cubby with his name on it at school, what must it be like for Sean and all the other babies, children growing up in shelters and every time that his mom would get a job, he'd get sick. And then he, she had to go back on welfare to get healthier. All this crazy stuff, right? So that's where the word cubby came from. But you always knew it. I mean, it was just, it's just being able to give a kid the security of knowing there's one sober adult that'll stand in front of a Mack truck right. for him, right? And, you know, and- I grew up at a time when the outside world was so dangerous and so crazy because of all the changes of the civil rights movement. And we lived not far from Central High School, even in the first grade, when all of that was going on. I saw saw soldiers drive into, my brother and I talk about this now, because I said, did I make that up or do we actually, (laughs) but they would have come in down our street where we lived to get to the high school, because Little Rock is not that big a city. Uh, So, but, but safety was home. Uh, in the sense that, you know, my mm-hmm. that my stepmom after my father died and then the church after, you know, she got sick, all of that, we we found a safe space. And that you was- found, you're right. And then you found friends. Oh, my great producer, David, David, say hi. So everybody knows when I go. To Hello. This. Yes, I'm here. How are you, Mark? This is David. So David, I wanted to give David a shout out, Liz, because uh, he was telling me about, you know, when you have friends around that makes up your family too. And he was talking about his son who's gone off to college for the first time. And one of the things that, that they were checking in on him was to find out, did you find your peeps? Did you get that gaggle? Did you find them? Right, David? Yeah. And he, he did. That's I was a friend. I was telling a friend, he seems to be doing well and he's, he's doing good in grades and, you know, comfortable and all that. And he said, but most importantly, did he find his peeps? Did he find his people? Yeah. And sure enough, yeah, he's, he's made three good friends. They're going to live together next year. And, and that makes me as a parent just makes me so happy and relieved, you know, it's all the difference. Yeah. That's right. Uncle Robert Frost again. (laughs) So then you're there, Liz, um, in college, my memory is that you majored somehow in communications. Majored in, uh, majored actually in theater. I I remember producing, what did I direct or produce? No, I directed The Corner by James Baldwin. That was my senior project. (laughs) Never. uh, You buried your lead, girl. For such a good reporter, (laughs) you buried your lead. (laughs) You know, it's so funny that that Nick, my son, would be in theater because that was one of my loves uh, growing up. But um, so that did that at the Olivet School. And then I went on to the University of Wisconsin for graduate school. And there I studied television 
production wow. and, and, and journalism. So all of that, I had kind of written as a high school student, I like to write. And so all of that kind of came together in graduate school. Wow. So yeah. was it, was it in high school, college or graduate school that you actually thought to yourself, what I really want to do is I want to be a news reporter. I want to be on air. Did you, do you have a memory for how you made those decisions? It's always been like little breadcrumbs for me. It's never been some master plan. When I grew up, now you have to remember the times. I had uh, teachers tell me, you know, you want to be a teacher or you want to be a nurse, but those were the limitations. And and I'm not knocking those. Those are wonderful professions, but those were the only things that you would hear uh, people tell young black women to do. Oh, young, uh, just so that you you understand why we are joined at the hip here many, many times. That's what they told young white women too. Oh, really? Um, And then you had a whole separate barrier there. Right. um, of, oh, of color so that we're yeah. we're just grappling with now, for God's sakes, finally in an honest, open way, I think. But back back when I was in, yeah, you and I are about the same age. So back when I was in high school, um, like you, I was smart, <laughs> wicked smart, and I wanted to um, be president. I mean, right then, I did. I wanted. I knew what I wanted to do, but I was told. Matter of fact, uh, for folks listening from Simmons College. I wanted to apply to Simmons and my counselor, who was a woman, if you can believe this, said to me, oh, no, you're not, you're not going to be accepted at Simmons. First of all, you don't have the money. And second of all, you're not in the honor society. And I said, well, I have all, I have all A's. I take all honor courses. I'm just not, you know, in the national honor society. She said, no, 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 you don't have the money. Mm-hmm. So apply to UMass and apply to BC and a couple of, <laughs> so, so that's what I did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that, I, I was told the same thing and, and that was wonderful. My mother was a teacher, so I'm not knocking that, but journalism came out of my senior year at um, Little Rock Central and my journalism professor who I took the course. I don't even remember. I think I always liked to write, you know, you probably yeah, yeah, yeah. little silly poems or whatever. I did too. Yeah. Somebody led me that way. And he said, you know, you have to you should work on it and that was like that was like a light bulb that was like stars shooting out no one had ever said that to me yeah like you say like I pretty yeah I didn't even think I did because you know Marjorie you know coming up with people telling you what you can't do now you've always been pretty much up you know a breaker of of Mm. glass ceilings and that kind of thing but I kind of just accepted it if you said I couldn't do it okay I can't do it no. And he said, no, you can do it. You can write. So that opened up. A you know, sometime, I mean, I wish we had a couple of hours because it, I would really love to explore more the difference between my mom was a single mom for a while, but she was married to my dad, who was a brilliant, wonderful guy when he was sober, but he was afflicted with alcoholism and it's what killed him when he was 40. So mostly it's my mom and my mom is just a ballsy broad. I mean, mm-hmm. and she just said, no, no, no. Don't you let them tell you that. Right. I could, when I was uh, 12, my older sister, uh, Susan, who you may recall, a great attorney, was getting married. And she fell in love in Brookline, which we all did, with a devilishly handsome, um, incredible baseball player, great student, two years old than her, Saul Yes. That's who she married. He was Jewish. We were Catholic not great Catholics, to be honest with you. 
not particularly good. She converted to Judaism with great enthusiasm and, and great support from my mom. Not great support in the beginning from Saul's parents, but they came over. They were beautiful people. They are beautiful. Um, long story short, when I was in her wedding, I was a, one of the bridesmaids, you know, and um, I went to Sunday school the following Sunday. So they got married on a Saturday. I went to Sunday school Sunday and the Monsignor of all people, you know, the ground shakes when the Monsignor walks into the church pew. And when he says, Miss O'Neill, I want to see you, you know, in that sacristy. And I went, holy crap, what did I do wrong? And he lambasted me up one side, across the head and down the other and said, I excommunicate thee, I excommunicate thee. And I started crying. I said, I thought the devil himself was just going to jump out from behind the desk. And he said, because I gave in and witnessed my sister leaving the church. Ah, my sister leaving the church. So that was the that was this this great, you know, fearful thing. And when I got home, to your point, uh, my mother said to me, he doesn't tell you what to do. And she grabbed me by the hand and we marched right back down to the priest. And I watched her and she lambasted him up one side. Wow. Down. Wow. They are in love. He is a good man. He's the best man that I've ever met. Da, 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 da. Anyway. So, yeah. So I'm glad I, I was a well, little, I didn't have that. I didn't have that role model as a mom. That. My, my stepmom was a very gentle, very quiet, very glad to be married to my father and mom and was never that way. And, and I love her. And she was wonderful as a mom, but that was not her strong suit. So I grew into- You found um, your uh, voice though. You found your voice girl because- yeah, yeah, I think people, you know, I've always uh, kind of made the road as I walked it, right? There you because, go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So you get, so I know you, you bounced around, you did some on-air stuff in Denver and- Yeah, I started in Little Rock. Um, yeah. I went from my hometown to Denver, Colorado, Den- Denver to San Francisco- and San Francisco, yeah. and then to Boston. So, so what? Most people listening to this podcast are going to be Boston centric, yeah. and they know you from BC. And you just it became an immediate star. You were iconic for so many reasons. But um, I'm wondering if you could tell us what did it feel like to get on the air, and it seemed like within a year you. And at that time, were you with no Lobel? What Lobel? And who was? Uh, well, and I worked on the weekends together. And so they brought us both to the weeknights within a year. You're absolutely right. Yeah. We came, kind of came up together. Amazing. Um, and I worked with, who was the first? And Tony Pepper. Tony Pepper. I remember Oh, God. Him. That's like, some people will go, that name sounds familiar. But those, oh, I remember he was Tony. the first co-anchor. Uh, and it, so it was, and then Jack Williams at, right after Jack that. Williams. Yeah. Yeah. So then we were together forever. Forever, forever, forever. But I was looking back. The the one downside to a podcast is that I can't show video clips. But I remember what I was watching you. I didn't have to wait for the video clips of all of the times. I think what people loved about you and what reminds me so much of having a copy and being willing to share what you've got to make other people feel comfortable was the rapport that you had with all of the your co-anchors, your, your co-hosts. Lobel and anybody else. I'm forgetting who did the weather then. You'll remind Bruce, me. What's uh, it? Bruce Schweigler and Barry. Oh, Bruce Bruce and no, yeah. Barry is still on TV. Doing it. <laughs> I, know. So, I know it. Yeah. 
when I flip around and I see him, I always stop and I laugh because, but, but talk, talk a little bit about how did you feel so comfortable so quickly? You talk, well, no. you were the first anchor I ever saw that actually looked like you were sitting around your kitchen table. <laughs> on the news. I, I got to tell you that Lobel was really the welcome mat for me. He, when I got to WBZ, of course, I didn't know much about Boston. I just came here. It was a job. So but you I talked like really, you came from Boston. Huh? You talked like you came from Boston. Well, yeah, maybe I just learned that quickly. <laughs> I, I didn't know anything about this, you know, the situation, the atmosphere, all of the busing issues. And, and, but Lobel was just a big, you know, his arms were wide open. He was very authentic and we just hit it off. And you we had such rapport. Sister, and he just made me laugh and he was very comfortable. So Lobel more than anybody, we just, it was instantaneous. And I had never had a relationship like that on the set. I had yeah. had other anchors, but but it was just very special. You so, laughed, and yeah, he still. And he, I know, no, I know you. Know nobody was paying attention to us on the weekend, so we were just having, we were doing our just- job, <laughs> we were having a good. good but you time. laughed a lot. We did laugh. We laughed a lot. Laughed a lot, we and were I love that. Of happy news. I think that's what they called it. Happy news. <laughs> which turned out not to be a good thing. But back in the day when we were doing it, we had a ball because I genuinely loved him. Still, he's my you friend. Still do. Uh, yeah, I know you still stay in touch with him. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you see those pictures. So for those of you at home, you can see these. I'm going to run these on Facebook, I think. Oh, that's these great. Yeah. The some shots of you with the old crew. Could I have I hair even pads? then? Huh? Could I have yes. the, the foot? I look like I work for the Patriots. Those shoulder pads are Remember so. Remember those shoulder pads? <laughs> I know it. But your hair looks good. Yeah, that was back. <laughs> with the Afro look. But Lobel was so sweet and we just had. So fun. much and, fun. And so then they moved us to the weeknight. They moved us together. Big time, prime time. Yeah. But it was it was genuine. And I think that's what people appreciate. You yeah. know, I just want to say, um, in terms of bringing, bringing things all back home, you know, getting a sense of home and cozy and comfy. And I don't think he'd mind me saying it. I should have Bob on the show. But he's been, he's had some health issues, you know, and about five or six years ago, he asked me, and I was thrilled and honored to come and MC the Arthritis Foundation annual meeting. They were honoring uh, a bunch of great people. Um, but that's when I first became aware of all the struggles he had. He was so quiet about it. I mean, he didn't complain. I don't know if you know him better, I know, but what a, just a great human being. Yeah, and yeah he's had a tough time in the last uh, 15 years. I mean, it's been a while he struggled, but he's got such a, a good heart. And, uh, and yeah. a, it's a humor and uh yeah so he still still plays golf still has a good yeah. time for anybody listening who is a lobel fan like liz and i are uh you can find him on facebook and he has great stories he keeps up to date so that everybody knows what's happening in yeah. his life so yeah. yeah so that's very cool but so let's talk about i i want to talk about when you got pregnant and how you made that whole decision because for me as a woman i was so proud of you I could burst because you were facing a decision that you seemed on air to be clear about. You you were proud, you were pregnant and having your pregnancy in full view never left the air as far as I remember. No. What was that decision like? Well, you know, the funny thing was I was 36, 37 years old. And at the time, that seemed like, oh my goodness, you know, I'm at that age. And we I was talk not, about our care. 
our ovaries, <laughs> they're talking to us. Right, exactly. And I, I knew marriage wasn't in any kind of immediate thing. So there was not even a decision to make. I assumed that I would lose my job. I assumed when I found out I was oh my pregnant gosh, isn't that I would just lose my job. And I thought, well, you know what? I'll, I'll be able to do something. I'll figure yeah. it out. Yeah, uh, because that motherhood was the most important thing at the yeah. moment. So it wasn't like I had to, you know, wrestle with a decision or anything like that. I was surprised. I was shocked when the television station said, you know, they just shrugged and said, "Okay, cool no with us. Uh, I I wasn't ready for all of the reaction from the, the attention. World. Yeah, you the you, you didn't think that there'd be oh. uh, of all the attention. Now I know from my female friends right uh, they were overwhelmingly supportive and so impressed and and empowered I think is a good word that you were you know beautiful proud pregnant as hell by the time you left to have Nick Um, and it seemed very positive but your the reaction across the country oh it was it was uh, it was unbelievable and so much so that the tv station god bless them put a special now looking back it didn't do the tv station any harm to have the you know controversy i mean because that's attention but but not only that but at that time you were yeah the first woman black woman right in boston to to be anchor the news anchor the news to have the audacity to have a child (laughs) in the public life with no husband are you out of your mind as my mother-in-law would say Without benefit of marriage, I right. presume. <laughs> You're supposed to be a, a perfect person. You're not supposed to do things right. like that. But the station, again, made a safe space for me. They put a team on public relations, meaning they took the letters and took the calls and protected me. I so I didn't that. have to deal with that. But 90% of the calls were positive. It wasn't, it it wasn't like I was getting beaten up. Now I was getting beaten up by some of the columnists and some of the yeah. conservative people. And, and so it was an issue. That was a big issue. And remember, you'll love this. This was the same summer. I announced my pregnancy the same summer that Gary Hart <gasps> got busted for Donna Wright. Donna Wright. Right. So and what was this the, was the risky, was the, the Mon- boat called the risky business? <laughs> monkey, oh, monkey, oh. business. Monkey, oh, business monkey business. Monkey business. Yeah. Thank monkey you, business. David. <laughs> monkey business. Thank you, David. <laughs> so, and that was the same, that was the summer. summer. Same summer. So this was the summer that public lives became, or public, mm-hmm. there was, you know, private lives, public lives burst forth onto the, the scene of the media. Right. Before that, there was no, there, you didn't hear stories about it. was sort of an unwritten rule. Yeah. People for celebrities like you and for, for politicians like me and Gary Hart, although I uh, you know, never knew the guy, but, <laughs> but there was this unwritten rule right. uh, that you just didn't cross into their private lives. And it, you're right, that, that line uh, yeah really started not just fading away it came quickly down that it wall came down but gary hart kind of dared the media to do Didn't that he? he did it what oh yeah ball. i know the story by heart because that oh, was yeah. sorry. no so pun intended it, it all exploded and that then i was the next story yeah <laughs> like, i you handled it so much differently you handled it not only honestly but up front and unapologetically I think that was the big lesson for me and for a lot of women in the women's movement unapologetically if there's nothing wrong why are we apologizing I was nothing you know and and I you know I got calls from Oprah I got calls from Mike Wallace 
as if there was some great conspiracy. Pregnancy is not a conspiracy. <laughs> There's no mystery here. How does this happen? Well, you should know that. I don't think I have to tell you. <laughs> do I have to draw a picture? Well, Did you do Oprah show? Did you go on Oprah I, show? I didn't do that. Was the that was the beauty of this television station. The uh, woman that who kind of helped me get through this said, "You don't have to take a position. This is you're not running for office." Right. You know, and I didn't say anything. The only article I did was with the New York Times, and we did that kind of for the record. Mm-hmm. Nothing else, and we made it through. And it was a uh, you know it was a really incredible experience. Yeah. But uh, I learned a lesson, and I was I had nothing to apologize for. And, you know, my baby was born and went on. So, uh, but it was a, it was an extraordinary moment. It it was. And so, and so Nick, beautiful Nick, we should talk about Nick in a little bit. Nick was born what year? 1987. Okay. So this is a great segue then. I did Oprah's show in 1988. Wow. And it was when I was, had divorced, left, separated from my first husband had Kelly, Eric, teenagers, high school going on to college. And Boston Magazine did a feature on me and made me in the cover. And it said, all the boys love Margie, but the girls aren't so sure. And it talked about my being tall, wearing heels, talking like the boys, you know, working my bills out with the Speaker of the House and, you know, don't get in their way, da-da-da-da-da, which I don't apologize for either. That's what I was elected to do, right? But Oprah's Sally, her producer, I don't know if she's still with her. She was great. And she called and she said, we're doing a show and it's going to be called Why uh, Working Women to Do or Not to Do, something like that. Mm-hmm. And Liz, they put me on with this guy, this reverend, never heard of him, haven't seen him since. But they opened the show by him saying, you are a Jezebel. You're a single mother. You should go home, literally go home, bake brownies. And leave the men jobs to the men. You're taking jobs away from me. And I remember I looked at Oprah and I said, "This something like this. This man has just said so many things that I have to correct. How much time do we have? I don't know. And she she was fabulous to me in that. But this was in the at the same cycle where you were on the air unapologetic, and this guy was ticked at me. So even in Massachusetts, and you know. I don't know, what's the word that I would call Massachusetts? Used to be very staid, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of that the ability of women to to start breaking out into what was considered to be male jobs and to do so unapologetically is is something that I really turned to you. And I was so proud of you. You gave so many women hope. I hope you know that. Margie, I did know. Sorry, Margie. Sorry, Margie. You, You told that guy on Oprah, I think we have to get his thinking into this century, maybe. Oh, no, yeah. Yeah, that's what you said. <laughs> yeah, the kids I have, uh, I've got, I've got the video too. Well, we'll, we'll put that on Facebook sometime or whatever, but. Um, I'd love to see that interview. That must be something. You, it is. So, it's so fun. It's fun. But I didn't and know. David I, problem. David, you will get it for Liz. Yeah, we'll, we'll track it down. Yeah. I didn't know at the time. And again, no master plan, just going from one step to the next. But uh, to this day, I have women come up and say, you know, when you were pregnant, how that helped me. Or when you had that child, how that gave me courage. 
or your, your, you know, your determination through it, whatever. So I didn't know it at the time. I just, you know, I was getting through my life. You just did it. But, uh, uh, yeah. And, and that's how life is sometimes. So it's it true. True. Yeah. That path that you take and I want to talk about that in particular, because I later went on uh, politics, a little TV, a little radio, not, not at your level, but a, a talk show, different work. And I never made it to Oprah. So you, you, you I rose beyond me. Yeah. But I also did much to my chagrin, Geraldo Rivera. So I, I'm <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry about that. I do regret that. But when we came together again in a lot of the charity work that we do, whether it was Jane Doe, domestic victims of domestic violence, or one family scholars, uh, single women on welfare, going back to college and getting fabulous jobs, you know, doing all the things that a cubby talks about, you know, if you didn't have it when you were young and if you were homeless and somebody helped you get there, then as adults, we can make our own cubbies and we can share that experience. And I remember you came several times to the one family program, to the one family scholars and just knocked their socks off because I would say about 75, 80% of the scholars were women of color mm-hmm. um, and, and very diverse from uh, many different countries. Um, some did not speak English as a first language. It never made a difference. Once they got the opportunity, one family scholar, and they're still around today, thank you, Paul and Phyllis Fireman, they provide college education. You get in, if you do schoolwork, you get in, you get accepted, paid for the education, paid for your apartment and helped you find work so that if you work 20 hours a week and you got a three or better, you would get a full boat scholarship and mm-hmm. assistance, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I would say about 75%, as I mentioned, were women of color who nobody had ever told that they were going to be this, that, or the other thing. And that right. once they got into the program, they found each other and we tried to help create this, this copy experience for them. They became the best achievers. Like okay. you say, when somebody says you're good, when somebody says you can do it, when they see somebody like you, not only doing it, but thriving and surviving, mm-hmm. that, that I think is the best gift. Absolutely. Is, is, is that Absolutely. You- I remember doing so many, and I don't know if I had a production company or we were just doing it because you hired us to do it or we did it as a favor, but we did so many stories on scholars. Yes. We kind of stayed with them and as they you know graduated and lived their dreams or got to their dreams. It was so inspiring. Isn't it? They were just great. I mean, almost to a woman. Absolutely wonderful. Yeah. So it was a great experience. It was a great experience. Thank you. And you, and you, and you served on my kitchen cabinet. Yeah. Yeah. Remember, yeah, we had a kitchen cabinet and there was all the people that, you know, sort of cared about all of this and we would have fundraisers and get togethers in all of the women's kitchens. Yeah. You had a fabulous kitchen. You yeah, back in the day. Yeah. Back in the day. But so listen, I want to talk before I lose your time here. One of the biggest changes that you have made is, and I remember right after, I'm sure I wasn't the first one you told, but right after you made the decision to go to the Harvard Divinity School, you, you, it was clear you had already made that choice that you had another plan. You had another mm-hmm. plan. And you mm-hmm. left the most incredible job that so many, the as they say, the roads are in Boston and across the country are paved with people who just stood in line waiting to have your job. Right. And, well, <laughs> right. I mean, and then you and you left it voluntarily, went to the Harvard Divinity School, 
and you're now an amazing right reverend at the Roxbury Presbyterian. Um, but that moment when you made the decision, can you talk a little bit about that? That took a lot. Well, you of know, time. again, another. Well, it was another breadcrumb time. I mean, I, it sounds like, oh my goodness, you made this really dramatic decision. I, I had grown unhappy with television news and decided that there was something else. And uh, a, a woman who is one of my sheroes in the world and one of yours, Gloria White Hammond, was one of my best oh, wow. friends. She yeah. and her husband were my ministers, again, in church, because the church has always been a part of it's my life. It's always been a part of your life. So you I never know. really lost touch. I never, not really. Even when I was in my heathen days, I, I kind of kept a toe in. <laughs> heathen days, by the way, folks, parentheses, when she was hanging around with Marjorie, I remember you <laughs> said to me, you have to stop swearing now because I'm going to be your reverend. <laughs> And God is listening. And I went, so the the decision to, to leave was based on a trip to South Sudan that I made with Reverend Gloria. She wanted to go to investigate allegations of slavery and it was a life-changing trip. Who gets to do that? And who gets to see people at war, people who have been marginalized? Uh, Sudan is probably one of the, one of the most troubled spots in the world, Somalia, Sudan, all of that part of Eastern North Africa. And so we were there and it changed my life to see people in desperate need, uh, women who had been gang raped and, and, and had, you know, had been raped by 15, 16, 20 mm. soldiers in one sitting and, mm. and people who had, had been taken slave labor. All of that was so dramatic and I had never seen anything like it. Changed your life. That, how that how changed. could it not? Yeah, exactly. So okay. it wasn't even like I was doing something heroic. It was just responding to what I. But you followed that journey. You followed that path. You know, the, the path and was taken. You know, yeah. Television was to report it, but Gloria said, here's something, we can actually do something to change it. And, and you're, uh, you're though, you did a documentary. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, the name of which? Uh, a Glory from the God. A that's Glory from the God. Gloria. They called her from Gloria. A Gloria, right? a Glory from the God. That's what she was. Because and can people still find it on YouTube, I wonder? I, I haven't. If I could find it on YouTube. Oh, I'm, if you could find <laughs> it. It's, no, it's out there. I just never even thought about keeping it. Why would I do something? I don't know, because, well, because I remember uh, seeing it when it was available. I don't think I ever saw the whole full thing together. You might have shown me a couple of pictures. Yeah, but I've got to find it, because now, at this point in my life, I I want to look back on it. You've got to look back on it. David, crack producer, David, if you you can find anything, David can find anything. Did you say Gloria from the God or Glory from the God? Glory, G-L-O-R-Y, and that's what they called her. A glory, because a glory. He, a glory. That was kind of the, she's a right reverend as well. She's yeah, a doctor she's a, and a reverend, right? She's an extraordinary woman, extraordinary and, uh, woman, and she's, she's married to a reverend, uh, Ray Hammond. They're both Ray medical Hammond. medical doctors, uh, graduates of Harvard, yeah, uh, medical yeah. school. Then they went on to Harvard Divinity School. So extraordinary people. So there you went to Harvard Divinity School. I remember I was at your graduation. Yeah, and uh, you've just done the work. We of, had a party. You know, was that your? No, that yeah, we had a big party. We had a big party, but I sang at it. So guys, <laughs> somewhere I hope there isn't a recording, but you had a great band. And I knew a couple of the guys in the band because I had done a couple of gigs for charities. And we did I Will Survive by Gloria. Now, I don't have my documentary, but I have the picture of us singing together. Of us singing. (laughs) That was so great. Yeah. And we didn't swear all night. It was great. So now I, I want, so here you are at the church. I've been there many times. You created a program that I now, I just want to make sure we get to before um, I lose your time, this call, Can We Talk? 
Right. You created it before COVID, but now it's almost, it was almost spiritually preemptive of you. Yeah, yeah. In a way. It was like preordained. It. Preordained. That's the word I was looking for. So how did that come about? And let's talk about this new creation that's coming up like here in the now today to well, capture that for so many other communities. This church, as you know, because you've helped us yeah. in so many ways in supporting the church, is in the midst of Roxbury. It's on Warren Street, right in the heart of the community. Tough little neighborhood. And at the time that I started at this church as the pastor, very violent. There were lots of gang wars. There, it's, mm. it's kind of calmed down now and it goes in, in waves. But at the mm. time I was there, it was just, it was unbelievable. It was, it was almost like being in Sudan, which was a war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A war. Um, in this so gorgeous building, beautiful churches with been beautiful people around, beautiful it. people love, you know, love the Lord, love their work. Love right. And now are all of this children killing children. Exactly. Terrorized by this violence. And one of the young men in the church was killed. And that was a really horrifying situation, traumatizing situation. Mm-hmm. I came right after that. We started this program around the death of this young man. His name was Corey Johnson. And uh, in trying to do something more, you know, when you have violence in the community, you meet with the mayor, you meet with the police commissioner, you you have protests, you try mm-hmm. to figure out what to do, and that's all good. But what happens the next day and the next day and the Good next family day? and the people yeah. and the pain. And so we were trying to figure out something that would serve the family, the neighborhood after the, the protest meetings, because the pain's still there. The meeting with the mayor. The trauma is still there. You taught so many of us about the impact of trauma, exactly. the trauma, not just of violence, but talk a little bit about how you connect that to the trauma of being homeless, the trauma of being poor, the trauma of so many things that so many people grapple with and they're embarrassed to talk about it. Well, sure. Uh, But when you, I mean, we're going through it right now in this mm -hmm. of COVID-19, this pandemic, but when you have to be exposed to extreme circumstances Mm -hmm. uh, and they could be there all kinds of things. So we talk about violence or it could be addiction Mm-hmm. It could be, you know, a child abuse or sexual abuse or domestic violence, extreme circumstances. You're trying to figure out how to survive that, right? And uh, so trauma is that wound that happens to you by exposure to those extreme circumstances. People, if you don't get help, if you don't talk about it, if you don't get relief, then you just bury this stuff mm. inside. So wounds have to have air and light. Aww. And if they don't, they, they just fester. That's a great and reminder. Yeah. And, and, and they get worse and worse. And so this is what had happened to this family of this young man who was murdered. I got there three or four years afterwards. You know, I got there a year after his murder and this family was just all over the place trying to figure it out. And we're a church. That's our job. We're supposed to be sure. with you and work with you. So we started this program based on conversations with uh, mental health clinicians and spiritual people who said you got to give people a safe space back mm-hmm. to that people have to have a sense of safety a sense of reconnection somewhere that they that they know they're loved and they can tell their story without judgment uh, or fixing and that's what we did and those were our our can we talk just come into this space you can talk about your pain we won't fix it but we'll stay with you. We'll in the process, 
in the process, I didn't mean to step on you there, no, but sorry. that's that's so beautiful because in the process there, uh, you you start the process of healing. And that healing, like you say, you can't cure it, but learning to deal with it and learning that things happen for a reason and to learn the very best lesson we right. can from right. and why this happened. And you do that so well, I think just learning to talk about it, like mm-hmm. you are the kind of woman who you just put it right out there. And that's probably why you're so healthy. But a lot of people hide whatever. My father had a, a problem with drinking mm-hmm. or my mother didn't talk. We don't talk about that because we don't, we're shame. Mm-hmm. We're embarrassed, but that's not healthy. So that's where the, the can we talks started. They have been beyond our wildest dream. Mm-hmm. It, successful. People from all over come just to sit there on Thursday night. We did them once a month. Now we do them once a week. And since COVID started, we do them online. You do them online. This helps people. And, and what's so exciting that you're helping us with now is that we have uh, seven programs that were replicated they came to us because they heard what we were doing. Can we do your program? Will you help us do your program? We help. Can you help us do what you're doing? And we said, of course, this is not a franchise. We, we help anybody. So that's, we're in the process now of helping those different replications uh, all over the country. We have one in Chattanooga, one in Gary, Indiana, one in Providence, Rhode Island, but oh the base of them are here in, in the Boston area. It's, you know, it's so exciting. And I get so excited about it because as, as you're talking about it, of course, I'm obsessed with cubbies. And I think to myself, it's a cub. I mean, yeah. that's, a cub. that's, that's cubby with a capital C. Uh, and I remember the first time that I came to the church and just sat and listened and heard I won't mention his name, one of the young men that's part of your parish came over to me afterwards. He's particularly well-spoken in terms of being able to articulate the pain that he and his family had gone through and his, what he called his flaws, but I mean, you know, things that he had been through and watching how the sharing of the story, the telling of the tale is part of the whole process. You're right. Just letting it out, being able to stand, it was what, many, many years ago, Alcoholics Anonymous tapped into. Absolutely. That's all it is. It's It's testifying. science. It's just being able to to speak your truth. Yes. Have someone witness that. Have someone witness it. Quietly. I mean, we're not here to judge. We're just here to you. And and so you're right. And you have been, you and Chris, your, your wonderful husband, have been such partners in us, with us, in getting the word out. Oh, aren't you sweet? And so we're very, very, uh, just, uh, just a love and love and love and love with you guys. Cause you've really been very helpful. Well, it's, it's so mutual because it always feels so good after we come home from something. I was telling Liz, you guys should put this down in your book. September 24th is my birthday. I talk about my birthday all the time. And the last three birthdays I have been honored, blessed, and for some reason spent it with Liz because it was either an event that we did with David Joseph, the fabulous designer, and we did faith and fashion, uh, raising money for, for Liz and for the Corey Johnson program. And, uh, but then to three years ago, you let me come and you invited me to speak from the pulpit. It was like, oh my God, I'm so excited. And, and I said to you, uh, you said to me, can you do it, you know, a week from two weeks from Sunday? And I said, well, of course, whatever it is. And you went, mm, that's September 24th. And I went, 
my birthday again. <laughs> that means something. I don't know what it means, but it oh, means. So it's always it's always a gift to be able to spend time with you. But can we talk though? As we can we talk as we sort of uh, bring this all around in your journey that you, like you say, it's like little crumbs. You keep finding little crumbs, but they have created this extraordinary yellow brick road uh, mm. to feeling good, I'm sure, about what you're doing and to expanding that. So expanding the Corey Johnson program, can we talk? It's going to have an exciting expansion in the fall. Can we talk about that? You want well, to talk? Yeah, we could talk. We yeah, I don't know if it's a big secret. It's just all coming well, I, together. Yeah, I think, you know, I think some of the secret will just break right here. But <laughs> to, uh, we've gotten a lot of, uh, well, we've got great partners because what we're doing has the seeds of something good. I mean, mm. especially now, people need uh, relief. They need ways to deal with emotional issues and mental issues. Everybody's not going to get into a, a psychiatrist office. Everybody doesn't need a psychiatrist mm-hmm. or a psychologist, but we all need to, to share each other's stories. So we decided that we wanted to expand our replication even further. We have seven replications right now. Uh, one is on hiatus. So we have six active replications and we want to expand that. So uh, we're doing this major fundraiser, which you and Chris are helping us. WBZ TV, can I say that? Has you, come of course, you have to say WBZ. <laughs> it's where you started in Boston and this whole circle now. Yeah, and they are coming. And we want to be your main partner. We want to help you raise this mm. money. And so we haven't decided on exactly how much, but we're going to raise enough to get uh, at least uh, 10, if not 20 <sighs> replications all over Massachusetts. Can you stand it? Is that just the most- Girlfriend, can you stand it? Huge, huge. Boston Medical Center, Mass General, all our the partners around us who are helping us do that. Uh, uh, Clapazola, you know- Clapazola, we're in there. But it's going to be great. And so anybody really that wants to get in touch with you really can get in touch with In Search of a Cubby, you know, here at uh, Pod 617. David, you'll give me a better address than that. What should I be telling people to get in touch with? Pod617.com. You can go there and find, yeah. and, and we'll probably have it on pod617.com slash cubby, all cubby. the all the information. Slash cubby. Yes. Right. And you can also go to, now RPC, what is your website for the- uh, Well, let me give you the RPC, yeah. RPC, social impact, social impact, ctr.org. We have got to find a shorter address. (laughs) You can't now because that's the one that's been out there. But David, let's put that up on our website too. RPCSocialImpactCTR.org. CTR.org. And also up on there, they can also learn how to join you on Sundays for... Absolutely. You can find everything. We have a little podcast called Just Between Us. So we're trying to find like you. And and so you can find all kinds of ways to communicate with us, especially our Can We Talk. We have a... And watch for exciting things to be coming up in the fall. Absolutely. And we'll be be talking about it and doing all that stuff. I love you. I love you, Reverend Liz. You're my sister and we've been together forever. And we've got more stuff to do. We have more stuff to do. We're just getting started. We have more cubbies to build and to build around. Absolutely. And and I so, so love you for that. Thank you so much for joining us. So everybody you're listening to In Search of a Cubby, it's the podcast. You can find me as well as InSearchOfACubby.com. See the first three chapters of the memoir in progress that's all about the cubby. And uh, we're going to be here every week. And uh, if I get really good at this thing, we might do it more. But thank you, Liz. 
Thank you much. Thank you David. both. Yes, fabulous job as usual. You want, well, thank you. You want me Stay to with us and take us out? And... You, you got it. I got some special triumphant music for you as well, which is fitting, oh, fitting for both of you, I think. But thank you for listening to the podcast. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you find your podcast: Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any of the major platforms. For more information, go to pod six one seven dot com. And thank you for listening to In Search of a Cubby.